Welcome to the VMware Multi-Cloud Podcast. My name is Eric Nelson, and with me I have my co-host, David Jasso. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Welcome to another show. Today, we're going to be talking about the multi-cloud runtime with Emad Benjamin. Emad Benjamin's in the studio with us. He's the chief technologist out of the CTO office. Emad, how are you doing today? Good. Doing great. Great. Um, so why don't we start with, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How long have you been at VMware and what are you working on? Oh, great. Um, yeah, so I've been at VMware for about 14 years. Um, I came in the first five years, uh, spent time in uh, VMware IT on our internal uh, technology stacks, uh, doing all sorts of performance tuning and scalability and, and, and so on. And then uh, the next eight years, I spent time exclusively with our customers, uh, working both with our customers and engineering, you know, extending the, uh, the features of, of the product and capabilities of the product, uh, but also learning a lot about, uh, you know, what environments and what application platforms look like uh, with, with our customer base. And, you know, that gave me uh, quite a bit of insight. And then finally, about a year ago, uh, I decided to join the office of the CTO and incubate some of the ideas that, that have been kind of brewing in the back of my head to try and productize them and see if we could actually close the gap for some of these issues that we've noticed with, uh, you know, customer application platforms. Cool. Hey, Imad, I, I know you guys recently did a white paper around... Mm -hmm. um, I think you're calling it a hybrid cloud runtime, but I think it's also you know multi-cloud in nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking at also very deeply around what application platforms need to look like in this world. Maybe you can talk a little bit about yeah. uh, what that was all about and kind of why you guys even did it. Yeah, so um, uh, actually every few years I'll, I'll find the time to write a book. Um, and so d depending on travel time and airplane time, usually I'll, I'll write books uh, during uh, long long haul flights. And I was writing a third book uh, on, on just the cloud native and what's going on with cloud native and so on. And uh, I realized I wasn't going to finish it. So um, then, then the next step was, okay, well, can we take some of that content and actually just create uh, a paper around it? And so the first three chapters of that book is really in that paper. And the motivation behind the paper was uh, multifold. I'll go into some of them. The first thing was, what we learned in those eight years engaging with our customers. Uh, what we found was that 50% of our customer base were struggling with maintaining their SLAs and SLOs. So, you know, they, they were trying everything, but they were still missing, you know, whether it was a response time or uh, availability or anything like that. They, they were just missing it. And uh, the other piece of uh, information was that they, were, they, were, they had something like 2x to 3x more hardware provision than what's actually needed by the application. So those things, two things together kind of bothered me a little bit. And so I started to think about this uh, a little bit more. And I realized that whether uh, you're deploying on private cloud or public cloud or multiple private clouds or multiple public clouds, what you really want to appreciate is the nature of your application platform. Like, what, how does it scale? Uh, <clears throat> what are the security policies that it needs? Um, how do you lifecycle manage it? How can you update it without uh, you know, an outage or taking a scheduled downtime and things like that? All the way from whether it's microservices, traditional monolithic applications, talking to in-memory databases that can scale out and you could kind of do rolling updates on them, all the way to traditional uh, relational databases that you can't really do rolling updates on um, easily. <clears throat> so then we took a step back and we thought, okay, well, the, the missing link here is a common runtime where it gives you a common observability across, across these two application platforms, mm -hmm. uh, the private cloud side and the public cloud side. And so the first name we came up with was the multi-cloud runtime, which is a common connecting fabric between the left side of the brain and the right side of the yeah. brain. Um, and in this common connecting fabric, we want to do things like common observability. Like, I don't want to have to go to the private cloud uh, team and say, hey, which monitoring tools are you using? We're doing a root cause analysis. And I go to a public cloud team and say, give me your monitoring tools. And the two monitoring tools or the stacks don't talk to each other. And we're constantly uh, chasing, um, you know, bad information. Uh, so 
Okay, so we put a box around this idea, and it's called the multi-cloud runtime. So what's inside the multi-cloud runtime? Yeah, and, okay. and, and maybe before we even jump there, I, I think maybe probably help the audience to just kind of give a definition of sort of what that application platform is, because I know there's different components that sort of come together, and that right. is absolutely what, I mean, that's what makes up the application platform. And, and before you define the application platform, I'm going to follow back with one of your statements, because I find it interesting, which is um, when we're, we're doing this podcast for architects and people that need to architect a multi-cloud platform, um, but you said something interesting around uh, over-provisioning for the application, right? And I find that interesting because from an architectural perspective, there must be a bias that must happen when you're designing your architecture to actually, you know, over-provision. And I just wanted to know if you guys actually could drill into that a little bit of, because oh. then when you talk about your application runtime, like, is it solving part of that that design paradigm? Yeah, so so I'm pretty passionate about this specific topic because it's an industry phenomenon. Um, <clears throat> developers uh, are continuing to over-provision because uh, quite simply, they don't have enough time to do the due diligence of capacity planning and understanding really how to scale the functionality. Because for the most part, you know, developers are cranking out business logic, and it's probably somebody else's job to kind of look at scalability and how to, uh, you know, increase the scale and things like that. Um, but if I look at, um, and the reason why that's happening is because you know, some companies uh, and some groups were pretty successful at saying, if you code it, you own it, you run it all the way through in a full life cycle. And I would say 80% of companies don't do that today. Interesting. Right? right. And if I certainly look at my own career uh, as, a, as a purist software engineer, uh, you know, I've worked on DOD 2167A, I've worked on really, you know, uh, hardcore military standards of like programming and so on, uh, things like that. And uh, all I wanted to do was write code, mm -hmm. right? And it was somebody else's uh, problem uh, to, to see how it scales. But when I joined VMware, I was, I was kind of hired to fix some scalability issues. And VMware being, um, you know, the company that made infrastructure into a ubiquitous runtime, I quickly learned that actually infrastructure is really interesting because if you have a situation where your code doesn't, run really well. You could do certain things around it to, to make it run better. And to me, that was really, really interesting as a software engineer where I got to learn a lot more about operations, infrastructure, uh, cloud computing, and so on. And, and I'm hoping other software engineers kind of listening in will, will buy into that and learn more about you know, how their code scales. Yeah, on that topic and coming back to the issue of sort of the app platform, what it is, you point out some interesting things in the paper around, um, you know, how how the job of, of optimizing the application mm -hmm. gets split up between different teams, but maybe you can hit on the components yeah. and then how everybody deals with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe that will give us an idea of what, what the definition yeah. is as well. So. So basically, I mean, um, I, I like to split it into three components. Uh, basically, you have the business logic code. You have the source code. The source code needs to run inside an application runtime. So if it's a, if it's a Java code, it runs inside a Java virtual machine. If it's Go, Go routines, and uh, the Go runtime, and so on. And then the third piece of that is the compute space that it needs to run on, right? Whether it's inside a Docker container or if it's in a VM and so on. Um, so those three pieces... If we look today in the industry, the first two pieces are still owned by developers. So developers will actually write some code, will package it inside a runtime, and ship the runtime to the platforms team or the operations team. The platform team and the operations team will get the runtime and will make an assumption about the compute space that it needs, right? Uh, almost kind of blindly trusting what has been handed to them. Um, and this is where the gap begins. And this is where kind of the problem unfolds in our industry. And I've been spending you know, quite a bit of time trying to, trying to focus on how to close that gap. Right. And, uh, and one of the interesting things that you point out in the paper, going to the public cloud doesn't just solve this problem. This mm -hmm. continues to exist mm -hmm. whether you're on the public cloud, private cloud, whether you're doing containers. Yeah. Quite often what we do is when we say cloud, we kind of conflate the meaning of cloud. I'd like to think about cloud as two separate uh, pieces. 
One is really the, 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 the cloud itself, the compute space, its location, and so on. And the other um, is really the APIs and the services that are offered on the cloud. And so when you ask a developer, you know, are you on the cloud, they're thinking, I'm using, you know, uh, certain services from certain cloud provider. And when you ask an infrastructure engineer, uh, you know, an, an ops engineer about cloud, they're thinking, oh, okay, what kind of uh, virtualization stack they may be using, what kind of compute space they're got configured, and so on. And then those are the two pieces. Now, if you go to the public cloud and you take an application and you just lift it and shift it across, you've just taken whatever bad scalability, bad manageability, uh, bad performance, uh, you know, you take it and you've shifted a ton of the cloud. Now the question will be, you know, do you get a better uptime? Do you get some things that are refined now? Maybe, but at the end of the day, most of the time, you've just shifted your problem. What, what I typically do when I engage with customers, I say, take a small pilot application. Let's understand how to actually refine it um, and then move it over. And I, I split that into two categories. One category is we can all recode an application. The problem with that is we can't recode all of the applications. Mm -hmm. It just it's a costly. Well, if we can't recode all of the applications, is there something we can do to the application runtime and the application topology to make it smarter in the way it consumes the compute space? And I would say almost always there are a lot of low-hanging fruit opportunities to do that. And we've been doing that quite a bit. And so over the period of eight, nine years working with our customers, we've developed quite a bit of application runtime tuning patterns mm -hmm. that we're now trying to encode into this uh, multi-cloud runtime thinking. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. So at a high level, um, what is a application runtime, right? Um, you have app code, app runtime, infrastructure as code. What, 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 are, you, what are you then going to offer? You mean the multi-cloud runtime? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So, <clears throat> okay, so uh, we, we talked a little bit about the idea that, you know, if you can picture a box, multi-cloud runtime, the first day of the design on the whiteboard, we drew this, and we asked ourselves, what's inside of it? What's the first building block? The first building block is service mesh. And the reason why we need service mesh uh, is because we want to be able to do smart uh, distribution of traffic. We want to do multi-dimensional, uh, you know, policies, security policies. Uh, you know, we want to control anything that's happening between layer four to layer seven of the application. So service mesh gives us all of that. Uh, Matt, just on that, yeah. when you say service mesh, I think you mean something slightly broader than when we talk about right. containers. Right. And, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I'll finish defining sure. uh, multi-cloud runtime. I'll come back and I'll drill down a little bit more on, on service mesh in, in case our listeners haven't had a chance to dig deeper into that. And so service mesh alone doesn't fully solve this problem that we were dealing with with application runtimes oversized and, or undersized and things like that. So then we built another layer of uh, a set of controllers that understand the application runtime. We put that on top of service mesh and together with Service Mesh, we call this the multi-cloud runtime. Um, and some of these controllers, for example, uh, the first thing that you need to solve is scalability, right? If you're going to have a multi-cloud situation, right, the first thing you should be able to do is I can scale the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain easily, and there should be a common control plane that does that for me. I shouldn't have to do it every time that I have to release a new application. So we did that. We incubated a project. Uh, the uh, code name, uh, tech preview code name, was PRTC, which stands for Predictable uh, Response Time Controller. Um, and uh, what that does is basically you have a, an application that's made up of microservices. Um, it's talking to um, you know, multiple backing services, like it's talking to MongoDB and maybe talking to uh, some other services deployed on other public clouds. And we collect metrics and topology information from service mesh, call graph information, who's calling who. And based on that, we do scale, we take scaling actions as the traffic varies. 
and we maintain a predictable response time as defined by the user. So the user may say, look, my three services in this application need to complete a transaction in three seconds, all the time, any time, regardless of transactional volume. You handle the scaling and send me the bill at the end of the month, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to send my SREs racing around trying to figure out scalability. So we do all of that. So we incub incubated that and that will be, ro uh, currently it's tech preview as part of the NSX-SM or NSX mm -hmm. service mesh product. Um, and obviously we can't talk about definitive timelines, yep. but you know, it's, it's being merged into that code, the product code base. So are, are we good on, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, on no. MCR now and on multi-cloud yeah. runtime? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. And then, uh, and just, just to clarify some things. So the, mm -hmm. the, there's work going on in your team. You guys, the way I think about this, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the concept of skunk works, but you guys are building out stuff that then eventually then flows into yes. the products, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, we are a small um, kind of ideas and incubation team. Um, what we do is we, we've guided all of our incubation based on the pain points that we uh, saw with our customers. So we have these use cases at the back of our mind, and uh, we worked with our engineering units um, to kind of uh, sell them on the idea and get a buy-in. And once we got a buy-in, then we went and built it. And so in the last six months or so, we've been, you know, busy coding and uh, we've, we've finished the first version of it. Um, it's going well. They like it. And now we're going to go on and build other controllers. So cool. the, I, I only talked about PRTC, but there's, there's the compensator, there's the DDoP controller and so on. And, we, you know, when we get a chance, we'll double click on those at some time. And that's interesting. And I just want to, I just want to come back to uh, the CTO office. That is the role of the CTO office. Some CTO offices at different companies have different roles. I mean, at Sun Microsystems, there was labs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, but really, if you look at VMware and how we structure kind of advanced development, mm -hmm. it comes out of the CTO office. So even though we mentioned Skunkworks, I would actually say that the role of the CTO office is to Take a look at these more complicated problems and things that customers are experiencing, and then start developing technologies yeah. that solve solve these issues, and then roll them back into products and release them as uh, what do we call our pre-release labs? Uh, I want to call uh, flings, where we do some some, right. some of these right. things and come out as flings and so forth. And some of them may not end up being flings, but I think you touch on a, an interesting point uh, in terms of innovation uh, that happens in the valley. Almost always, it um, it happens by you know just pure research, incubation, and the customer interaction is the last mile, or flipping that process on its head with our group, where uh, we have a team that spent a significant amount of time with customer engineers. We've seen all of the use cases they struggle with, and then we're building products around that. And so our our in kind of feedback point to our engineering units is all of that customer interaction and use cases. In this specific case, you know, uh, if you read the recent blog that we released uh, on the uh, Octo um, uh, blog site, um, we talk about this three-pronged approach to, to br bridging this gap. And uh, so the three prongs are, first, you need a new persona, uh, which is the application platform architect persona. Second, you need a mechanism that kind of, you know, different organizations would use an SLO mechanism as a as kind of a language to exchange and agree upon what the what the metrics of performance should be, and then a runtime that can execute those SLOs and measure them. And so, what we're doing is defining use cases around all these three prongs and just driving them across all of our BUs. Yeah, and to some degree, this makes sense because if you look at the maturity of VMs, right, mm -hmm. it's a fairly mature concept, right? Cloud right. offers VMs. Um, and really where the, the, the added value comes and the, and the research and building applications is getting closer to the developer, getting closer to continuous integration, building the necessary pieces to allow this to seamlessly happen. We, we made virtualization seamless, right? Uh, we made SS, uh, SDDC, right, uh, Software Defined Data Center, 
fairly seamless, right? But when you then try to bridge that gap, you yeah. actually have to then start building the seamless connections back into the engineering orgs who are building the apps. This is why we use the word runtime, okay? VMware is the cloud runtime company. I mean, we take fairly complex infrastructure, you know, 20 years ago to, to build up kind of a cloud was really a complex undertaking, right? We kept on building abstractions upon abstractions. We built a cloud runtime, you know, vSphere, uh, you know, it's a solid product, right? And we hit all that complexity to the point where you don't need to deal with it anymore, right? And we're yet again moving up the stack, you know, with uh, service mesh products and, you know, on top of that, putting the concept of the multi-cloud runtime and things like that to make it easier for developers to deploy an application and forget about it. And, and this goes on to the developer persona as well with the Tanzu project and, and things like that about being able to manage Kubernetes clusters and, and make it a lot easier um, yet again to hide the complexity of Kubernetes so you can focus on the, the thing that matters the most, which is the application logic, the business right. logic. Well, right. This shows, you know, to a large degree about architecture, and I, I, I know you hit on service mesh, and then we talked about controllers riding on top of that, uh, but I, I, I remember looking back at the paper that there's some core capabilities that sort of sit within that service mesh, right? I mean, that really enable those controllers to actually do the things that they do. Maybe you can talk a bit about what some of those fundamental capabilities are. Yeah, so... So we keep talking about service mesh. Maybe, maybe I should define what service mesh is first. Um, um, and service mesh obviously was popularized by Linkerd. There's just kind of two projects, Linkerd and Istio. Um, and really, the, the definition has moved on beyond those. But let me just kind of define it based on what Istio has established. Uh, first of all, you have a data plane and a control plane. Um, and what happens is... Uh, basically, there was uh, a pretty smart proxy called Envoy uh, that is able to interpret various protocols that, you know, services would communicate with each other, gRPC and HTTP and, and things like that. And what Istio did is uh, it manages these, these Envoy proxies. Um, and uh, what happens is you can create policies of saying this service should not talk to that service. Um, um, you can manage certificates and things like that, right? Um, uh, you, you could figure out what the call graph is between these services because you can figure out who's talking to who. One, one of the hardest things in architecture is like knowing which service is using which other service. Um, and so, so that's kind of you know very quick rudimentary explanation of service mesh. We don't have an hour. Could easily take an hour to explain it. Um, and then on top of that, what we're doing was saying. Okay, well, what if I want a multidimensional security model, okay, where I want to say things like these users can access these set of services and this data platform. So it could be users in Canada separated from users in the U.S. and things like that. And I want to describe a policy that does that. Okay, so that's what we're, we're adding on top of, mm -hmm. top of service mesh. And then we talk about things like scalability in PRTC, right? How do I do multi-cloud scaling where it's not just Kubernetes Docker container scaling, but scaling of a VM, scaling of a, a MongoDB database that happens to be living on EC2? How do we do that? Um, so PRTC does that. Um, uh, it shouldn't be just kind of confined to a Kubernetes cluster and its mm -hmm. capabilities because not everything is going to run in Kubernetes for, for quite some time. Um, and so we're adding all of those uh, building blocks. The other, the other building block is ability to do rolling updates, right? Uh, different uh, traffic uh, patterns that you can execute. So like you can do canary deployment. Um, you can do shadow mode and things like that. Different rollout strategies um, and so on. Yeah. Cool. Any other big functions sitting inside the service mesh that makes sense to chat about? Uh, we've got a few that probably early to okay. talk about them publicly right now. There's, there's about eight we're thinking about, mm -hmm. uh, right now, but sort of the ones that, uh, that we are going to go into tech preview pretty soon with, I've kind of mentioned. Cool. 
Yeah. Cool. Um, I, 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 lo- I love the next topic that we're going to talk about, um, okay. which I, I'm all about the people. And uh, for me, you know, as, as we've transitioned up the stack, we see new rules being developed, right? So we now have DevOps. And, uh, you know, the, the DevOps role for the person is this inter, it's no longer an op, ops person that's managing deployment now with continuous integration. We have tools, we have Chef Puppet Jenkins, and now you have this DevOps role, um, which is interesting that we have the cloud operator role, right? Which is like, a, I'm not exactly sure what, even what a cloud operator does, but I think he uses a mouse and interacts with Azure or AWS or some other platform to operate. Um, now we're actually seeing the platform architect role become prevalent. What are you seeing when it comes to this, this, this role? And we've always had a platform architects to some degree, but how is this role shifting and why is it showing up? Yeah, so, so I get this question, um, like, you know, with a lot of our banking customers where they'll have like a middleware team, right? And I'll be like, well, the platform, the new platform is the new middleware. I'll be like, oh, that t- makes total sense because what you want as a developer, I want to consume a platform that's runtime ready. Right. I just want right. to deploy my source code and run it, have somebody else figure that out. And so... What we're saying with these personas is this multidisciplinary kind of multi-skill set that's needed to package these platforms, where you have, uh, you know, uh, SREs with Python, with Java, with Go skills, and comfortable with those runtimes that are right. putting together Kubernetes clusters. And, and deploying them as, as fully packaged uh, platforms. So let me let me unpack that a little bit so yeah. that just my brain can get a yeah. handle on that, which is uh, you used to have middleware teams that worried about all mm-hmm. the packages and things you'd have to install on-prem yes. to make a you know a runtime environment, right? It wasn't yeah. your build environment, it was your runtime environment. And it was software you installed. Um, now as we move into the cloud, right, these things come as platform deliverables, right? And, and so yeah. this platform architect is really about making sure that all the services and interconnects are happening and designed. Yeah, and and I think because applications have gotten increasingly much more distributed, so you have not just a single process, but you've got a control plane with multiple processes that are part of the same thing, and so on. And as a result, it's a complete platform. You can uh, code against the platform, like can manipulate the platform and things like that. So the role has gotten a little bit more sophisticated because you have to have software engineering coding capabilities to, to be able to deliver such platforms. Um, but I want to go back to the thing you touched on in terms of DevOps and site reliability engineering. If you really look back at where DevOps began, before actually DevOps, and I'll probably get into trouble for saying this, but, but I've said it publicly before, um, and I'm, I'm still okay, so <laughs> it can't be that bad. Give, give yourself time. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure yeah. it'll, it'll catch um, up. But uh, somewhere in the early 2000s, uh, you know, when Google was rolling out their search engine, internally the search engine was really, really complex to maintain. You needed software engineers to maintain it. And so they had this notion of the site reliability engineer. Let's hire software engineers, entice them to work in operations, but we want software engineers to be able to look at a problem and say, I'm not going to do this, you know, this repeated 10 steps manually every time. I'm going to actually code something around it and so on. And that's where the site reliability engineering um, concept came from. It yes, was sure. all about reliability and automation. Right. What happened somewhere around 2009 and so on, the DevOps term was coined. And at the time, you had um, lots of... Um, I want to say kind of CICD vendors with a lot of their products come into the DevOps movement and make it all about CICD. Mm-hmm. So today, if I went and hired mm-hmm. a DevOps engineer, right. and the first task I give him, I'll say, we've lost, the, sca- we've lost the site reliability piece of it. Absolutely. Right. If, 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 if I, want to, I want them to fix something in scalability, they'll be like, no, I, I can show you how to deploy Jenkins and how to automate and so on. Right. That's right. somebody else's problem. We lost the R out of DevOps, and what I usually say is, let's inject SRE back into DevOps. Mm-hmm. And certainly, if you look at the service mesh thinking, the app platform architect persona that's discussed in the uh, the Octo application platforms paper, we talk about the reintroduction of the application platform architect as someone that's capable of handling application runtimes, handling the R, reliability, mm-hmm. scalability, 
and the cloud side of it. And, and the work that you guys are doing, I think, really is almost like their tool set, if you will, right? Because That's right. Because it's automating a lot of things that, yeah. in another world, they'd have to do manually. Yeah, so, so let's talk about this other controller we're talking about. We talk about automating an SRE's life. Whatever an SRE does today, we want, that they potentially be doing manually today, we want to automate tomorrow into our product. So one of the controllers we are thinking about is called the compensator. So typically SREs will deal with something broken in the system. They'll figure out how to fix it. It may be 100 lines of script to fix this thing. Hopefully it's, it's kind of a, an error that's well-defined and well-known. And the next time this error happens, they'll run the script again and it's fine, right? What we want to do is give the SRE a plugin framework to say, define the error, define the remediation action, and we will call it for, for you because we're going to be looking for that error. Mm -hmm. And we're going to measure how the script runs, what objects it touches, and things like that. And over a period of six months' time, if you're a customer SRE, uh, you've got 100 scripts that you've already built into this dictionary set that you can call your own customized platform. We certainly have this notion of, uh, of customizing the multi-cloud runtime. If you release a multi-cloud runtime, and not allow someone to actually customize it for their own uh, use, use cases, then it's really not a platform. And, and we believe we want to release something that's a platform, so we give them this ability to plug in their own logic. We, we haven't talked about this before, but this sounds really interesting from the standpoint of machine learning. I mean, I, I assume that there's opportunities around machine learning when I, when I hear about this sort of, we'll look for it, we'll optimize it, that sort of thing. Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I'm not sure how much of this we could talk about, but remember what... We're going to be measuring these scripts. We're going to look what objects they're going to touch. Mm -hmm. If we see that these scripts are always adjusting some sort of storage volume or they're always touching the network stack or they're always doing something, we're going to know something about mm -hmm. the stack and we're going to make recommendations. This but is never going to work. We're <laughs> this not, is we're never going to work. Put it on record. <laughs> AI. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> No, it's yeah. it's a it's a cool concept, uh, and and I, I assume there will be some. I I won't call it artificial intelligence. I'll just call it call it good programming. How's that? Yeah, my, my only issue with artificial intelligence is the fact they use the word artificial. But hey, we'll see what happens. That's why right. I purposely said machine learning. That's right. That's right. 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 That's right. Uh, so it, it is good. I I always have to say show me show show me it working. Which which gets me back to the platform architect. I want to take us back for just a second, sure. and I'll let uh, let you guys. Go go again. Um, when we're talking about the platform architect, right, I want to pick your brain because you're sitting here, we're doing yeah. this podcast, yeah. spectacular failures. All right. So I know we didn't talk about this, but I, I want to you know, yeah. allow people to get inside uh, Emod's brain a little bit when when you're seeing this. And, and I know you're, you're building products for this. So customers must be facing this. They must have implemented some of their own solutions yeah. right, in trying to solve this. Yeah. And obviously, we're trying to bake it into our product set. Are are there places where people made mistakes? Are there some good implementations that 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 come to mind? Yeah. Uh, and just thought I would hit yeah. you with that. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's several use cases. The one I want to kind of uh, focus on is uh, single point of failure analysis. Now, this can be really, really hard to do, but we often um, resort to it when we engage with customers. We do statically or through a set of tools, we'll go in and analyze all of the places where there's potential single points, points of failure. Now, how do you build a system that can analyze that? Well, we have certain patterns that we know about. Uh, we can certainly leverage um, the ability of service mesh to do shadow mode. And by shadow mode means we can take part of the traffic that's coming in, we can spin up a certain segment of the application platform. It could be a complete segment, off on its own, and we can start to do things to it. We can start to take certain services out. We can start inject um, uh, things into it. Certainly, this is not a new, new concept. You know, chaos, chaos engineering mm -hmm. that kind of talks about that. But this is taking a step further. If we can do that on an environment and give you a report of where we discovered all of the single points of failure, that in itself is a huge, huge leap forward. Now, we're not going to get to uh, not even 80-20. If we can get right. to 30 or 50% of, of the single points of failure, we're already miles ahead. Now, if I was uh, kind of leading a team of SREs, um, 
running a trading platform or, some, or something like that, I dedicate a job function to analyzing single points of failure all the time, all the time. It's a constant right. thing. You have right. a new release, kick off. So you're seeing this as a weakness when it comes to architects that are addressing it. It's just analyzing the single points of failure and, and actually paying attention to that. Back to your SRE you yeah. know, point. And understanding right. what those points of failure are, you know. There could be a multitude of things, and you really need to kind of uh, stay ahead uh, of, of being able to test and test and test. All right, I'll interject my favorite fa failure yeah. failure story that's going yeah. on right now and, and get your opinion of it. Tesla uh, has yeah. uh, on, on their automobiles, they collect a lot of data, and they're yes. always they're, they're one of the innovators when it comes to uh, nobody yeah. actually looked at the SSDs they're putting on the cars and calculated how many reads and, read and writes they were going to do before they die, because as we all know, memory chips are not like store hard drives where they just keep running until the actuator burns out or whatever. These things actually have a number of read and writes before they just yeah. don't work any longer. And right. Tesla's been collecting so much data that all the Model S's now are coming in with dead SSDs embedded on the cars, right? And they can't get the data out. And in fact, uh, they're seeing failure uh, yeah. because the, wow. the, the write yeah. read-write devices were actually one of these places well, that they didn't really architect now i mean this doesn't really apply well, to kind of but, it, but it is it, it is interesting it, it is very interesting because i think uh tesla is uh, dealing with mass scale right 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 large uh, number of units yeah, large I mean, amount of data sets replace, right. replace tesla cars with uh containers or vms you've got right. a distributed system mm -hmm. what they've been uh, what tesla has been uh good at is the shadow mode testing they do a lot of the shadow mode testing um as they release software um so yeah, I mean, that is interesting. I think I think all systems around the world are moving towards this distributed systems, highly distributed, and collecting data to control them. Right. And right. this is really what the you know multi-cloud runtime is. If you see in the paper, we talk about the common control plane for common observability. What we mean by that is, largely speaking, systems around the world are moving in this direction, uh, where highly distributed systems. Uh, it's not easy to control them, and you rely on the collected data to make a best guesstimate as to how to control. Okay, great. One more question. I'll throw it back to David. Let him let him continue on. Um, when we talk multi-cloud here, right? Um, yeah. I always, I, you know, when somebody says AI or machine learning, I, I always, I always joke. Yeah, sure. Um, multi-cloud. Do we? Uh, the multi-cloud runtime brings you a lot of benefit that might not necessarily just be pure for multi-cloud. It's almost like multi-cloud in my organization or large distributed platform. Uh, are we actually seeing enterprises try to do true multi-cloud, i.e. I'm running on uh, my data center and I'm also running on AWS and uh, I'm yeah. also thinking about IBM. Uh, where does this fit in a time scale, right? Um. I think in terms of the industry, I believe, and what I've seen from uh, various customers is they're in a multi-cloud architecture already. It's happened. Okay. Uh, but it, whether it's the most refined architecture or not, that's, that's, you know, that's to be debated. Um, certainly, what, what I'm seeing is there's no common connecting fabric or common runtime that's being used. There is right. a tense at that. But there's not an industry-wide common runtime, commonly understood runtime as the cloud operating system. You know, you have an operating system on, right. on your machine. Where's the cloud operating system? We built the cloud operating system, right. and we're pushing it forward into a multi-cloud runtime operating system, if you like. Yeah, it seems like almost, and you can comment on this, I think you hit a little bit of this in the paper, but it's almost like people view the boundaries of the application in almost from a convenience standpoint, right? It's like, I'm on AWS, I've built some new capabilities that are about mobility, but it's it's calling back to a data center yeah. and the database there, but they and go, that's another application. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so. Uh, and, I, and, and that can happen on the private cloud or public cloud. In the paper, I talk about the root extraction factor. What that means is basically you think you're going to be able to migrate an application. You go to figure out how to migrate it, and all of a sudden uh, you find out there's n number of connections that you didn't know about. 
whether it's a data integration point or another set of services you call, and those happen over a period of time organically. And we are going to continue to see this. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be an easy boundary between applications. Uh, certainly what happens is uh, development teams will put a boundary around what they perceive as their application. Mm -hmm. But the minute it's out in the wild, if it's a good application or set of services, everyone's going to connect to it. Right. And once they're connected to it, then you have to deal with the distributed connections. And it's almost like the run, the multi-cloud runtimes helps them deal with the reality, yes. the real reality, not what yes. they would like the reality to be. Just, just like the universe is forever expanding, and we think that the mesh, once you define a mesh in an organization, it's always partial and it keeps growing. This is why you need um, a layer like, like service mesh that can keep all of the kind of call graphs up to date. Right, because you want to notice that, oh, someone is calling MongoDB on EC2. We didn't know about that. Who did it? Oh, it turns out to be a new team that joined the organization. That leads me to one of my thoughts and questions on this is when you're trying to then get developers to adopt something like a multi-cloud runtime, what's the best way for a, a cloud architect to actually um, you know, get in front of developers and actually get you know, agreement? to this, yeah. this new layer? So I talk about complexity shift because, you know, microservices have become a reality. And uh, if you, so, so what happens with microservices, just kind of very simplistically, is you might have three methods that were running in one memory space, and now you've got three services running across the network, right? You've kind of sectioned off all of the kind of business logic into their own kind of services that you can update the lifecycle faster, and it gives you, uh, you know, uh, a, a higher velocity to release features. That's great. With that comes additional latency, additional network hops, additional complexity in terms of monitoring and so on. Where is that layer that handles that complexity? It used to be inside this runtime that was highly optimized to deal with dedupe, to deal with, you know, uh, monitoring the service and so on. Once you split that runtime and distribute it, you still need a runtime. You need a distributed runtime. You just don't have it, and we're trying to build it. And that's how I start the conversation with developers. We'll be like, yeah, now you've got to deal with the latency issue. How right. are you going to deal with it? And Service Mesh, with the PRTC controller that we've, we've built and a bunch of other controllers, but try and deal with the scalability and runtime and observability issues. Are you seeing developers come down into the yeah. platform layer and want to learn yeah. this? Because yeah. I think they would start to figure out, I can't separate my app from the platform any longer. Yeah, and it comes in cycles. I think developers are largely frustrated uh, with, with the performance and scalability problem and being able to package and release software really fast. Um, and they're trying to solve this problem. Once that problem is solved, it'll be packaged into a platform for the platform's teams to take care of, and developers will be off to solving the next problem. I think today you'll find developers are working hard to spin out Kubernetes clusters, but tomorrow they won't be. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think that, you know... If, we're here to enable that, right? We're here to provide them the ability to move on to that next, uh, next, next problem that they're going to address. So I can see that, uh, you know, as we migrate up that stack um, and offer solutions, they're just going to grab onto those and then move on to the next challenge that they have. That makes sense. So from um, learning more, you guys published a white paper. I think you published it under on the Octo blog, the um, under your name, right? I think yeah. they can search for that and find that. Uh, there's also you guys did a great piece at VMworld, I think, right? Where you mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's available on demand for folks for VMworld yeah, US. Um, yeah, shout out to my team. We had about ten sessions uh, at VMworld. Uh, so look up Michael Gash, uh, Rafael Brito, and Daniel Lindsley. Uh, we all had sessions uh, at VMworld. We're going to have uh, other sessions at VMworld uh, Barcelona. Uh, the good thing is the sessions from uh, VMworld US are recorded, and you can listen to the yep. recording. Uh, we do go into deep dive, and we have the PRTC demo there. You can see sort of how we're doing multi-cloud scaling of applications uh, and so on. Yeah. 
Cool. On the, on the developer pickup, um, mm-hmm. I know that you obviously go, went to VMworld. You do papers on VMworld. Do you end up at any of the cloud uh, or developer conferences to yeah, talk so on these topics? That's right. So I, I'm part of the No Fluff, Just Stuff uh, developer circuit. Uh, they have the UberConf, which happens uh, around July in Westminster, Denver, uh, and, and also ArcConf in Florida around December, and ArcConf is all kind of uh, application architects and developers. And last year I did the um, a session there, um, microservices, what a service mesh. And this year Neat. I'm doing a microservices, what a service mesh, the SQL returns. <laughs> nice, nice. I, I, I just, I'll just I'll drop off to a funny story. Um, you know, every year I run the VMware code program at VMware. Yeah, yeah. And so we're always picking topics. We get maybe 200 papers submitted and we have like 50 slots. So, yeah. to, and I, I chose the, uh, you know, one that's service mesh uh, topics on a really awesome, cool, uh, put it in there. I was like, oh, that's going to be super packed, right? And I, I go and I remember going to that session at VMworld last year and there were like six people in it right and I was like oh gosh like I thought that would be the coolest thing to pay attention to right um I think that's now growing right I think that everybody's starting to understand that right absolutely Uh, um, which is neat I always take guests at the uh as we're coming up to the top of the hour I think we maybe have 10 more minutes left or so I always ask them so uh aside from um the late night latte that you accidentally have uh what keeps you up at night? Like, what are you worried about? You know, technical challenges, uh, adoption challenges. Uh, what, what, what is, what, what keeps you up at night? What are you stressed over? Uh-huh. That's, a, that's a good one. Uh, I'm not sure if I should really tell you. I know. Uh, <laughs> I, that's why I throw it out at the end. We never tell the guests uh, we're going to ask it. I, I, I've been really, and we've known each other for quite some time. You, you know, I, uh, when there's a scalability issue, I, I get cold pretty <laughs> yeah. quickly, right? Yeah. I yeah, typically yeah. try and hide myself. Uh, but uh, that keeps us up all night, doesn't it? Don't we worry about application failure, right? And yeah, just being called yeah. in at two o'clock in the morning with, uh, yeah, you I, know, or even Tesla's problem where you know we design something and then something hits us out of the blue that nobody thought of. Yeah, what, what occupies me these days is the trying to uh, make sense of the cloud native movement and and kind of guiding that movement towards the use cases that need to be solved, right? right? And I think, um, I think you know, uh, Kubernetes certainly has done its part. I think we need to quickly move beyond just Kubernetes and build layers on top of Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes is a huge enabler, but it's not where we're going to stop. Yeah, and that's, I'm going to stop you there because I'm smiling going like, yeah, and this is the problem with uh, the stack coming up into the middleware is that when things go down, Right, it's no longer the middleware team's responsibility at two in the morning. Right, mm-hmm. there is as we take on more footprint up the stack, there is more risk that that well, we do get that call at two I, o'clock in the morning. Ideally, ideally, if if uh, and if, so we have to care about this. Well, absolutely, but I think ideally we should get to a point where a failure does not wake us up in the middle of the night. And these are the architectures that keep me up at night in terms of thinking. How can we build products around this specific area? Like when I go, uh, and I've had so many different tuning engagements, I'm always thinking about how can you productize that? Because there's, it's, it's kind of tough because you apply a lot of kind of learned knowledge. And in specific cases, you apply that. In other cases, you don't. But we see certain patterns that we could actually productize around. We, with the cloud native movement, if we do a good job of it in terms of moving up the stack, so by we, I mean as an industry, then we shouldn't have to worry about failure anymore because there should be resiliency encoded into every service yeah. deployment. We should get to the point where failures happen, but they're not catastrophic. Absolutely. And you have time to Absolutely. adjust to them and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great answer, though, by the way. I think that's one of the best answers I've heard in a long time, oh, which really? is like, oh, yeah, the application failing and them calling me in the middle of the night going, hey, we get on a plane and fly somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. And then uh, to be fair, uh, what excites you about your job and what you're doing at VMware? What are, the, what's, what what's are your favorite really things? Exci- uh, yeah, what's really exciting, uh, again, shout out to the team that we've built, um, uh, Daniel Lindsley, Michael Gash, and Rafael Brito. What we've done is... We've uh, simulated 
kind of a customer group, uh, somebody with an, a huge SRE background, someone with a Kubernetes and Go background, somebody with uh, additional SRE and, and kind of Python background and applications background, put them together, try and build these ideas. What's really exciting is uh, I'll come up with an idea, we'll, we'll kick it off with, with my team, and then they race, race way ahead of me in terms of like, you know, implementing it and really being excited about, you know, building these new layers on top of our products. I think that keeps me really, really excited. Um, uh, you know, I want to say, and I've been to quite a few VMworlds, and, and without bias, um, you know, disclaimer, I do work for VMware. This VMworld was really, really exciting. It's, it's, I'm going to remember for a long time for the various acquisitions we've done, getting seriously back into the application space. Uh, it's really, really exciting times. You know, it is funny because last year and the year before and the year before that, everyone yeah. I go like, wow, this one was the best I've ever been to. Yes. Most exciting. We just keep grabbing new technology. We're offering yeah. new things for people to learn. It's getting bigger and just uh, and and every year it seems like we we acquire a, you know carbon black. We uh, you know Bitnami, other other pieces um, to the cloud story, doing deals with all the big cloud vendors. It just continues to roll and protect uh, our ecosystem investment in our practitioners and pl our architects who spend a lot of time learning uh, our stories. So, yeah, it yeah, is it's, cool. it's amazing how far we've come just in the last few years in terms of the expansion of scope and uh, sort of the building out of the portfolio. Yeah, yeah, and, and it wasn't always uh, always easy. We, we yep. had some, some tough times, but we kept on going and... Uh, you know, I always say some of the most complex workloads in the world run on the VMware stack. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it gives us an opportunity to, to deliver products that solve real use cases. Cool. All right, and to get the, the very core of Emod himself, any book recommendations? Uh, <laughs> oh, book recommendations. <laughs> Could be anything. Could be Could anything. Be anything. Uh, we'll let you off the hook on that book. one. I'll kill some time. Uh, uh, we are going to. We are going to. Any of the SRE books right now are good. good. I think yeah. that's a, that's great. That's yeah. great advice, right? Yeah. Any uh, of the SRE books. SRE, the lost art of of DevOps. That's right. Fantastic. All right, we have uh, David Jesso. David Jesso, uh, director of cloud marketing. David, as always, fun to do a podcast. Uh, Imad Benjamin, chief. Uh, technologist out of the CTO office. It's always great to have you. I'm sure we're going to have you again. Can't wait to see you in VMworld Europe and other places throughout the circuit. And uh, I await your next book slash blog article that, that hits the press. Until then, uh, thanks a lot for being here, guys. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Fun.